The Jewish views on Canvey Island. We find out why the Haredim feel priced out of Stamford Hill. Jukebox, Jukebox, the exhibition that shows exactly how Jews influence the music industry. And community heroes Eva and Hans Reichmann are honored with a plaque. First, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. It's been revealed that the entertainer Christopher Biggins is to visit Auschwitz. It comes after he was removed from Channel 5's Celebrity Big Brother show for making a Holocaust joke about gas chambers aimed at Katie Wasel, a former X Factor contestant who is Jewish. Following his eviction, he told Jewish News that he'd apologised to Katie and that he also wanted to apologise to the wider Jewish community but a 14-year-old video clip has emerged of Biggins dressed in a Nazi uniform, which was apparently part of a spoof television game show. A visit Biggins is making to the Polish city of Krakow had already been fixed for October before his TV eviction. Auschwitz is nearby. Ivan Lewis, the Jewish MP for Bury South, has failed in his bid to be Labour's candidate for Mayor of Greater Manchester. Mr Lewis came third in the contest, which was won decisively by Andy Burnham, who is currently the Shadow Home Secretary. Russia has admitted operating a stray drone which was seen flying over Israel three weeks ago. It prompted a military response from the Israeli Air Force, although surface-to-air missiles and air-to-air missiles, which were fired at the drone, failed to hit it. Russia claimed human error caused the drone to stray over the Golan Heights, but defence analysts say the Russians may have been testing Israel's defensive capabilities. Two refugees who were active in London's German-Jewish community after escaping Nazi oppression were honoured at an event to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Association of Jewish Refugees. The AJR chairman, Andrew Kaufman, announced the installation of a plaque in honour of Hans and Eva Rachman, and said it was for their contribution to the understanding of the culture, heritage and history of the Jewish emigres from Central Europe. And we'll be finding out more about the unveiling of the plaque from Andrew Kaufman later in the show. And finally, two former Israeli soldiers living in Miami are selling Trump and Clinton kippot and keeping a running tally of sales to gauge support levels for the two presidential candidates among American Jews. Uri Turk and Yehuda Moskowitz revealed that so far Trump is ahead with 91 to Clinton's 49. That's the news for the sport. We're joining Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Yarton Gerby claimed Israel's first medal of the Rio Olympics when she won bronze in the under-73 kilogram judo event. Only the eighth Olympic medal the country has ever won. She also became the first Israeli female winner in 24 years. Elsewhere in Rio... Ali Reisman captained the US gymnast team as they retained their gold medal in the all-round team event. The 22-year-old also led the team in London four years ago. And finally, boxer Tony Milch claimed his first title at the weekend when he beat Konstantin Alexandrov on points to land the international challenge belt. You can watch his title win and follow the progress of the Israeli and Jewish athletes in Rio at www.jewishnews.com. Thank you, Andrew. Welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Clive Roslin, and let's start, as we always do, with a look at your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. 
Welcome to you both. And Richard, let's start off with the front page. Yeah, front page, uh, as it often seems to be these days, is all about Labour. And this is the week, I think, that the Jewish community's relationship with Jeremy Corbyn went from the last chance saloon to finally, potentially, beyond repair. That's certainly the attitude of Lord Parry Mitchell, one of the senior Labour peers, who has said if Jeremy Corbyn gets re-elected, he is going to quit the party. This is, of course, all in the wake of the Shami Chakrabarti affair, a lady whose credentials are beyond reproach. She's somebody who's uh, done great work at Liberty and surely deserves her place in the House of Lords. But the timing of her uh, announcement that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was going to choose her as a Labour peer clearly stinks because it was done in the wake of what was supposed to be an independent report into Labour anti-Semitism. So now whether or not you believe that she's qualified to be in the Lords, and I think she is, I think she's a very highly reputable character and someone that will bring a lot to the Lords, whether you feel that she's somebody that was a genuine person to conduct an inquiry into Labour anti-Semitism, the bottom line, and what will be remembered about this whole affair, is the timing and the, the contempt. I, I can't think of any other word that I think Jeremy Corbyn has shown for the Jewish community by giving the author of a so-called independent review a peerage. And can I just add that amid the chaos of the Chakrabarti commotion, a number of Jewish Labour MPs have kind of sought the exit door. So Luciana Berger and Ivan Lewis both announced that they that they wanted to stand to be the mayor of Manchester and Liverpool, respectively. And they both came third place in the Labour nomination this week. So the future, the immediate future for Jewish Labour MPs looks quite sketchy, especially as Jeremy Corbyn looks as if he may win the Labour leadership battle. So there's a lot of turbulence on the horizon for the Jewish community's relations with the Labour Party. Yeah, the, it's, a, it's a very good point. The mayoral elections, I think, particularly for Lewis and Berger, were, were kind of the last helicopter out of Saigon in terms of the Labour Party for the next four years, because if... If, it, if you think it's got mean and nasty now, it's, it's going to get far worse after the Labour Party conference in September when Corbyn is inevitably reinstalled as party leader. Then the purge will really begin. The, the moderates, the Blairites, they're all going to get deselected and you are going to end up with a, a Corbynite party that is unrecognisable to any Labour Party, certainly that's existed since Michael Foote, maybe even before. So quite what these really great politicians, people like Tristan Hunt and Chakumana, Luciana and Ivan as we've spoken about, what is going to happen to them in the next three or four years? Can they wait it out till 2020? They're going to have to wait it out till 2025 because <laughs> Theresa May is probably going to be Prime Minister for at least that long. For a lot of people in the, in the centre and the moderates of the Labour Party what we're seeing is a total tragedy. Right, well that's quite interesting but there's something else that you're talking about in, in this week and that's very intriguing to me. Christopher Biggins, the actor. Yeah, household name, veteran, entertainer, pantomime legend. I think I saw him once in Puss in Boots. And that's only a side issue for this. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of our listeners are huge Celebrity Big Brother fans. It's a Channel 5 reality TV show. He was removed from the show last week for suggesting to a fellow housemate, a Jewish singer called Katie Weasel, that queuing for the showers in the Big Brother house was a little bit like queuing for the gas chambers in a Nazi concentration camp. He's apologised. He's apologised to this newspaper. He said he's sorry. He said he's going to be going to Auschwitz. And hopefully this could draw a line under a sorry chapter and we might end up having a, a happier ending. But another example of a celebrity embarrassing themselves and showing some anti-Semitic comments and then falling on their sword and apologising for it. 
That's a fascinating story. And what about the Lebanese team at the Olympic Games? They've been very unfriendly, I gather, as well. Yes, yeah, not really within the Olympic spirit. Before the opening ceremony, the Lebanese team were on a bus and the Israelis wanted to share the bus and the Lebanese team blocked them from coming on. And then they were given a dressing down by Olympic officials. When you think of the Olympics, you think of all nations standing side by side and you think of everyone getting along. And this really kind of was a blot on the paper. Aside from that, Israel have actually won a medal in the Olympics. What was the medal? It was a bronze medal in judo. My colleague Andrew wasn't particularly hopeful that Israel would win anything, so it was a nice surprise. We were all crowded around the monitors on Wednesday as we went to presses. Yarden Gerby lost her semi-final for the gold medal place, but then she won her bronze medal, so we're very excited, and judo's a very exciting sport. I used to do judo. Did you? I was a yellow belt. <laughs> so it's a few off black belt. You're safe with me. I, I promise I won't. I won't show you how handy I am. At. Also, what I was quite interested about the Olympics, I like to see the, the different angles and the different sides just away from the sport. The Israeli kit, the tracksuits are actually quite tasteful because you, you know how appalling some of these tracksuits are, like the Russians and the Ukrainians, real eyesores. It looks like some postmodern sort of art competition runner-up prize, the, some of these tracksuits. The Israeli kit, I'd actually wear that. So there may well be other Israeli medals then? Windsurfing. I think we're good at windsurfing. You uh, think? Yeah, but I don't think they've won anything. <laughs> oh, and can I just also say, uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we covered Sharon Burgess' fight with leukaemia. She has a matter of weeks to live. This week, the Jewish News actually got involved and we all took the swab test to see if we could be a donor match. And I'd, uh, I'd urge everyone to do the same, to register, to see if you can be a donor too. And the website you can do that at is www dkms.org.uk A very worthy cause indeed, and thank you for that. Now, without being a name dropper, because I've met him, you have an interesting story, I believe, about Howard Jacobson, the author, and table tennis? Yes, the eminent Howard Jacobson, one of our foremost authors. He and I share a, a great passion for table tennis. I know you and I share a great passion for cricket, but I, I grew up playing table tennis. It was my most favourite sport. I grew up with the likes of Carl Preen, Desmond Douglas, any table tennis aficionado will know those names. And also, it's a very popular Jewish sport. Zach Zelaznik, Dov Katz, Eli Barati, these guys play currently and are to a very, very high standard. Well, JW3 is celebrating the Jewish Jewish interest in table tennis with a ping pong festival coinciding with the Olympics and we have an interview with Howard Jacobson about the JW3 exhibition about his love for table tennis about why it's the only sport really that Jews play and Jews excel in Howard Jacobson one of my favorite authors and my favorite sport so it's a perfect combination in this week's paper do you explain in the article why Jews play ping pong well it's it's a kind of indoor game in the same way that kind of tiddlywinks or snooker or darts it's one of those sort of games that I think probably we're more comfortable with because we don't have to wear too many kits and we don't have to train too hard and there's, there's less scope for arguing I think as well yeah not to yeah <laughs> most arguing yeah, when you when you have Jews playing sport there's often arguing well. I play cricket on a Sunday and it always it usually ends up in an argument what well, you mean you say you're not up when you're out <laughs> yeah <laughs> not to dis 
take too much away from table tennis. I mean, it, it requires great rhythm, dexterity, coordination. It's a fascinating game and the ball flies at uh, 100 miles an hour and the spin and the side spin. And the back. It's very, very skillful and a real spectacle to behold. I'm not sure why Jews are particularly drawn to it, but it's obviously a very cheap and easy sport to take part in. And certainly growing up, uh, going to Maccabi and these sort of places, table tennis tables are just commonplace. So it's just an inexpensive and sh- social thing to do. Well, that's fascinating. I've learned something from, from you. This, I learn something from you every week, but I've really learned something from you this week. And that's all we have to leave this week's look at the paper. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. When you think of Haredim, what area do you associate them with? Golders Green? Stamford Hill, or do you think of Canvey Island? Well, members of the Stamford Hill community have started to fall victim of the London housing market. Subsequently, young Orthodox families have started moving over to the Essex coastal town in a bid to find affordable accommodation. To find out more about this newly expanding section of the community, I've been speaking to Joseph Stober, a member of Canvey Island's Orthodox community. I started by asking him, why Canvey Island? It's a very good question. We as a committee, we saw the problem quite a few years ago, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. I'm only one of the committee. We have a committee about six, seven people mm. who are busy with the problem of accommodation, housing for Orthodox Jewish people, everybody and everybody actually. And we went around to several, several, several places. It's either too expensive or you don't have availability. You see, beside the price, they have to be available. If you go out in a community, you have to have several dozen houses minimum available immediately. The only place where we saw that it's feasible and it's quiet and the houses are there, the houses were there, because the houses were built about 40, 35 years ago by the inhabitants who had large families. The children grew up and they left the place because Canby Island is not very attractive for people who want nightlife, etc. So therefore, Canby Island is a place where we have quite a few large houses available. So the word is availability. Well, that's all very well, but was there any sort of thing which could be, which could be used as a synagogue or, or the life that Jewish feeling or, or kasher shops? Actually, the thing that clinched the deal, that clinched the place, Canby Island, was the fact there was an empty, large school building, quite a, like a small campus, quite a few buildings, and... It was closed because the the local government decided it's a bit out of the town. It has to be more in the center. So they were building another one. And this place were kept waiting for six years nearly. And so we picked it up. Once we have that main building, which is, the, which is a school for boys, for girls, a yeshiva for, for adults, and obviously a synagogue for uh, and, and all the other bits and pieces. So 
that clinched the place. So you turned part of the school in, into the cemetery? Uh, the whole thing, yeah. A sm- that's small. You got everything there? Everything in a moment. And what mom, about uh, the, the kosher shop? Kosher shop is not a big problem because anybody can open a shop and bring... It's not very far from London. How far is it? When there's no traffic, it should be 45 to 50 minutes. Oh, it's as close yeah, as that? Yeah, close as that. And then the, the worst, that, uh, the longest that it took for some people that live there already, even in rush hours, was an uh, one hour and ten minutes. That's all? That's all. Ah, and what about the people who were there already? Did they accept you well? Oh, they were very, extremely happy, not uh, so much... Uh, I think for them it's an honor that people are leaving glorious London and coming to live in Canvey Island. I mean, for us, this is all beautiful because there's no beaches, there's no uh, nightclub, there is no casino, which is all advantages to our community. Yes, indeed. We like it very much. And the people are very friendly people, the middle class people working class and uh, very, very, very friendly. Because when you look at the houses that people are living in in, in North London, mm-hmm. in Stamford Hill, mm-hmm. those houses are enormous and beautiful and people are used to those sort of houses. They're not going to find houses like that there, are they? The houses there are also four or five bedrooms. Are they really? Oh, yes. But it's, you're right. They're not so tall and not so spacious. Mm. And the tall and spacious houses, most of the places became now converted into flats. So you cannot find a house like you're used in Stavartil. And who needs the very tall ceilings and all no, this? You don't need it. No. So it's more have... modern. The Canvey Island houses are more modern and much more pleasant. So how many people are living there now? I've got a feeling it's about 60, 60 families. Uh, we are moving out slowly. No, not, we, it's not we, as big we as aim, No, we aim to have 50, 60 families because this is only a pilot scheme. And we find that the solution for the housing is to branch out satellites, like in olden days before the war. The Jewish population was not only in Budapest or, or in Bucharest yeah. or in, in, in Vienna. They, they branched out. They went to the small places. And I think that is the solution in England as well. But the problem, I would have thought, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm only guessing, but the problem must be how do you build it so that you're still living the way that you desire to live when there's just a few people living there? It must be very difficult. I don't think it's difficult. It's very, very sweet. It's That's how it used to be before the Second World War. There are small communities. This building that we found, again, this is the crunch because you have everything in that building. A mikveh. Yeah, that's very important. Very important. A synagogue. And the main thing is the education. You see, so many communities got lost and got assimilated because they, they arrived to America or even to England. They built big synagogues, but no education for the children, so the next generation was gone. That's why the most important thing is schooling. So in some ways, this is better to keep all the people going on for the generations to live there than to live in Stamford Hill because there's too much, could be things that drive people away perhaps. I don't think there's a danger to that. You're not? No. The only thing, the people that don't have where to live. It's not a matter of leaving Stamford Hill and going to Camel. The place, going somewhere because they don't have where to live. Many couples get married and live with their parents because there is no accommodation. 
simply none. So I would have thought that that, from the parents' point of view, is a lovely thing. You've got your children and your grandchildren, hopefully, all living with you, and then it, I suppose it grows into a huge, huge, huge... Exactly, yes. exactly. That was the problem, why people didn't realise. Second World War wiped off six million European Jews. Just a few people remained here and there, here and there. They started resettling in England, for instance, in London. They bought a house. And 20, 25 years, nothing has changed. But then all of a sudden, it started multiplying, you know, large families. After the third generation, it's... Do you think it's going to be like that? Do you think others will follow you? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I would like to... Um, I'm encouraging anybody and everybody who wants to do it. I'm prepared to help because I can see that is a solution. If... Other Jews who are not Haredim were to want to come there. Would you accept them? Of course, we are. We are not. We are not the owners of Canvey Island. Canvey Island yeah. is a free place. They might not want to send their children to our institution because it wouldn't fit in. But Canvey Island, if they want to come and pray in, in the small synagogue that there is there, why not? And how do you create the synagogue there? How many people did you say were there at the moment? Within the next two, three months maximum, it should be about 50 families. 50 families. Mm -hmm. How many are there at the present moment? As we speak, they're moving out slowly. So yes. there were, it, 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 people that bought houses so far is about 21, I think. Mainly, the main worry ours is to find houses for those people that are not fortunate enough, fortunate enough to be able to buy. So we want some institutions and charities to invest in a few houses to give for the less fortunate people. When you want to have a, a Shabbat service, you can always, you've got enough people to have a proper minyan. Since four weeks ago, every day, not only Shabbat, every morning and every evening has been a proper minyan. Proper minyan. Yeah. So that problem is put on one side. Yeah. Now what about the kashrut? The kashrut starts in the kitchen. So yeah. the only thing that the people had to do when they moved in, they had to put in a second sink into the kitchen. Obviously, uh, yes. Now, all the other things they bring from London at the moment, and there's somebody is starting a grocery soon in, in the place. So yeah. all the shopping has to be done yeah. in London still. Yeah, yeah, but it's 45 minutes, not yes, a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It's not a big deal. But it can still be it a, will a be. drag to have to go into it London. Will, it will be. There is somebody who started already, but it's not a proper... Uh, Grocery is starting to, to bring you milk. You know, if he buys one bottle, he buys 15 bottles. For yes, instance. yes. Uh, the thought, though, that, do you think Canvey Island will ever grow into the equivalent of Stamford Hill? Will it be as big? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. It will be an, a nice satellite and will be several more. I don't think it will grow as... as it hasn't got the space. It hasn't got the uh, capacity. So it will be... Uh, not a small, but not a large community. It will be a, a very pleasant community. I mean, I'm, I haven't got crystal, crystal ball to know exactly what's going to happen. But we are aiming to have it a nice size community, not, uh, not, that's certainly not competing with Stanford Hill or Golders Green. Will you be moving there yourself? No, I don't need it because I've got where to live. The whole idea is for people that don't have where to live. Joseph Stober from Canvey Island's Orthodox community telling me why members of Stamford Hill Haredim are moving over to the Essex coast in a bid to find affordable housing. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. 
Still to come on this edition will be our Jewish schmooze. And today, Adam and I will be joined by founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and retired audiobook reader, Denise Assison. We'll be discussing Jewish influence on the music industry. Plus, Dana Toman will speak to Andrew Kaufman from the AJR about the unveiling of a plaque to honour community heroes Eva and Hans Reichmann. But first, an exhibition at the Jewish Museum in Camden demonstrates exactly how Jews have influenced the music industry over the years. It features inventors of music players, musicians, and even the producers. And Phil Dave is at the museum. Phil. That's right, Clive. Yes, I'm on the third floor of the Jewish Museum, to be precise, at the exhibition named Jukebox Jukebox, which is quite hard to really explain on radio because it's actually spelt the traditional way, the first word, and then the second word, J-E-W-K-B-O-X. See what they did there. I'm actually in a room at the moment surrounded by really a stark reminder of just how music technology has come on so far over the years. And there are some, well, I suppose, of the wind-up gramophones that people of a certain age might remember, and then possibly, and hopefully, nearer my generation, all the way up to the humble MP3 player. I think we have an iPod shuffle, if I'm not very much mistaken, standing right next to me. But the person who'll be able to explain exactly what you will see if you were to come along to this exhibition is the curator at the Jewish Museum, Jo Rosenthal, and she's right with me now. Jo, Perhaps you could just start by explaining what inspired the Jukebox Jukebox exhibition. Well, this exhibition is a celebration of the Jewish contribution to the music industry going right back to the invention of the gramophone in the late 19th century. The subtitle of the exhibition is A Century on Shellac and Vinyl, and that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to look at a 100 years of music going back to music as it was originally developed. The exhibition is on tour at the moment from Europe, so in talking about how it's originated, I should say that it's come to us from the Jewish Museum in Hohenems in Austria, which is a fantastic museum which originated this exhibition. It's toured lots of different European cities and this London tour gave us the opportunity to add a lot of UK content into the exhibition. So we have the Dansette player, which is an Anglo-Jewish invention, the beautiful icon of 50s and 60s design. We have records from the Simcha Records label, the only Anglo-Jewish record label ever in existence, and loads of other forgotten, sadly forgotten footnotes of uh, Jewish history in the UK. Well, as we start off in this particular part of the exhibition, as you have said, and I've already said, was surrounded by all of these amazing musical players of some description from the wind-up gramophone, like I said, right the way up to the MP3 player. And they're obviously mostly behind Perspex boxes. I'm guessing that you don't want people who come to look at the exhibition to start playing with them. But there is one that's interactive. In a rather lonely corner, it would appear, of the floor, you've got a fantastic-looking jukebox with a great selection of songs, all on 45, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. This is a Rockola, an original vintage Rockola jukebox from the 1950s. It's programmed with 120 songs of Jewish interest or written by Jews or of, around Jewish heritage, so it's not that often that you get to choose songs from a jukebox covering a selection of musicians, f- including people like, well, there's Billy Joel and Lou Reed, but just reading off the names in front of me, there's also Esther and Abby Ofarim. There's also Al Jolson, Kurt Vile. 
Sophie Tucker. It's an amazing array of records. And yeah, it's free to use and visitors love it. They just stand here for hours choosing the records. And it's a lot of fun for younger people, obviously, as well. Every selection that you make takes quite a few seconds for the record to come on, which is surprises our younger visitors. And with the younger visitors, do you ever get to see their reaction when this is how music selection was at its finest all those years ago? Now, of course, we take it so much for granted that we can fit thousands of digital songs onto a portable player. But of course, this used to be pretty much one of the only ways to do multi-track choice before. Yeah, definitely. I think most people of a certain age don't seem to understand what it is, (laughs) don't know how to use it. It takes quite a lot of education, actually, to get a young person to engage with something like this. And for for one of those reasons, I added a film to the exhibition, which is a wonderful piece of British film history from the British Pathé archive, just showing how gramophones work, how music is created through a needle hitting a groove on a record, which we forget is, in many cases, just not something that most people today would understand in any way. And I think it's very easy for us to note the Jewish artists of which there are so many over the decades who have played their part in the music industry. But of course there were a lot of Jewish contributors behind the scenes as well, whether that be producers or the inventors behind the actual devices we used to play that music, isn't that right? A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, a lot of the untold stories are some of my favourite stories in the exhibition. We're standing in front of the jukebox, like we said, and one of the most enduring songs of the 20th century, Somewhere Over the Rainbow or Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland, is on here. People often ask why it's on the the jukebox, and it's because it was written by a, a, a Jewish composer, interestingly, the son of a cantor in the United States, which is the case with so many of these records. White Christmas, Irving Berlin, you can't get a less Jewish song than that but it was written by one of the most important songwriters a a Jewish individual again in the United States so a lot of these stories aren't so obvious at first and we're trying to bring them out in the exhibition Well just before we move on to having a look at some of the actual music that you've got featured here I believe that this jukebox makes a rather splendid sound so can we be a bit nostalgic for a moment do you want to line something up just so that we can hear in terms of it loading a record how it sounds and what it does so Okay, so we'll just turn it on first of all. We're making a choice. Oh, look at that. You've got a, a little row of all of the different records featured in here. And it's on what can only be described as an elongated, what looks like a, a certain triangular bar of chocolate. I won't advertise. But it's got on all the different sides different tracks and different artists. And you can just make your choice based on the number that you press or the correlating button. So if you choose one, it doesn't matter which one. And then let's just listen to the way this sounds, because it does sound amazing. And that mechanism that you can hear there is the 45 singles being spun around on a huge donut as the jukebox takes its choice and it loads it onto the needle. Look at that. Oh, that's brilliant. That There you go. And it starts playing. Fantastic. All right, well, I tell you what, as that's playing away, because we're not going to play any music on this, we've got far too much to cover to listen to all of this great music. We are going to take a little stroll over, though, to the second part of the exhibition, where I'm surrounded by a load of fantastic album covers. My goodness me, this I could imagine that this is sort of the audio equivalent of a full library. Because if you when you walk into a library and you're overwhelmed with all the spines of the books... Here, you're just overwhelmed by all of the different album covers. Perhaps, Joe, can you just talk us through some of the albums that you've got here? And obviously, I can see why they're relevant to this exhibition, but maybe for the listeners, why they're relevant. 
Yes, well, firstly, I should say the design of the exhibition has been done to make people feel like they're entering into an old school record store. So you have all the records on display and there's a a large listening booth in the centre. The wall that you describe is made up of around 500 records, huge number, Um, all lovingly individually slotted into position by us in the installation. And the 500 records cover around 15 genres of records. And I say records rather than music, because while we do have lots of music genres, there are also non-music genres so the beloved genre of Jewish comedy records Yiddish theatre records educational records but obviously musically we were standing right in front of synagogal music cantorial music over here popular music folk songs rock, punk, avant-garde Jewish experimental music, Arab Jewish music, a a lost story in many cases, music of North Africa and the Middle East, all sorts of uh, Israeli music, how Israel was marketing itself at at the height of the record revolution and the album revolution, and obviously klezmer. For many people, a cliche of Jewish heritage, but very certainly an important part of the, the story of Jewish music. Certainly is. And also, I think that apart from the way I could describe being in this exhibition now, it kind of feels as if you're in a little bit of a a Jewish branch, if you will, of his master's voice. As you say, you're supposed to be in this old record shop. And that's the way I look at it. And right the way through the middle of the floor is this elongated lit up bar with stools that one can sit on. I assume there's headphones there that so people can actually listen to the music that relates to the album covers that are actually etched within the bar. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we have around 40 or 50 songs that people can listen to. But importantly, not just the songs are available to hear. There are also wonderful stories that we've collected from individuals across the world, people who have donated their records to the exhibition, collectors, historians, curators, musicians, all who have been asked the question, as we see in front of us, this record has changed my life. How has music changed your life? How has music been integral to the shaping of your own sense of identity and Jewishness? And so people have been very generous in sharing their family stories, personal stories of rebellion, listening to punk when their parents were listening to... uh, Cantors, very, very intimate and heartwarming stories about the meaning of the place of music in people's lives. Well, it really is quite extraordinary. I think the one thing that really strikes me about this particular exhibition is how simple yet so effective it is. Because I'd say that normally exhibitions at the Jewish Museum, because there's so much to take in and so much to see, it's quite impossible to really sort of absorb all the information that one has to look at and has in front of them. But with this one, although there is a lot to take in, it's done in such a way that is so simple, yet very, very effective. And personally, I can highly recommend it. I mean, just some of the artists that feature, you've got, I see Jan Bart, uh, Sophie Tucker, and even Barbara Streisand is staring me in the face in the corner over there. Just finally, if anyone wants more information, perhaps you tell us where they go and all the details about the exhibition. The exhibition is running at the moment and it closes on the 16th of October. So do come along before then. We have a programme of events that are available to view on our website, jewishmuseum.org.uk. Loads of fantastic events, concerts, talks, walking tours, DJ workshops, late night events with all sorts of celebrations of record culture and music culture. So please do come along and and take a look. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Joe, very much indeed. And well, Clive, if you do ever feel like sort of popping down to the Jewish Museum and having a little bit of musical nostalgia, I can highly recommend it. But in the meantime, it's back to you. Sounds fascinating, Phil. Thank you very much. 
Phil Dave at the Jewish Museum Camden there, finding out more about their exhibition Jukebox Jewbox, which runs until the 16th of October 2016. For more information, you can always go to jewishmuseum.org.uk. If you would like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, two refugees who were active in London's German Jewish community after escaping Nazi oppression were honoured at an event to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Association of Jewish Refugees. The plaque was unveiled at a reception held at the Weiner Library by AJR Chairman Andrew Kaufman, and Diana Toman has been speaking to him to find out more. Andrew, let's start at the beginning. By my calculations, the Association of Jewish Refugees must have been started in 1941, if this is your 75th anniversary. Absolutely right, yes, by by refugees during the war. Who had already been based in Britain? Yes. For example, my father was already in England uh, and came in 1933. So um, there were plenty of refugees who came before the war. Obviously, a lot were interned during the war. In the Isle of Man. Exactly, on the Isle of Man Mm. and the university there and were only gradually released during the war. So we really only became effective after the war. As an organisation? As an organisation, I see. And you are the chairman of that organisation? I'm the chairman, yes. I've I've been chairman for the last 20 years. Oh, I see. Not just that off now. It's a long time. (laughs) So you all must have been hanging out, or your father must have been with his his contemporaries in the Cosmo in Frinchley Road? Absolutely, (laughs) yes. We went to the Cosmo as well. Sadly missed. Sadly missed. So that's the 75th anniversary of the AJR. And I gather that this week... uh, plaque was commemorated in the Wiener Library to celebrate that 75th anniversary. Tell me a little bit about the plaque and who it commemorates. Yes, they have a wall of honour there, which they've inaugurated about three months ago. And to various people who spent a lot of their lives devoted to the Wiener Library. This particular plaque was in the honour of Eva and Hans Reichmann. Uh, Hans Reichmann was more connected probably with the AJR. Eva Reichmann was the chief librarian at the Wiener Library. So their contribution was pretty immense, I should think, between the two of them. Absolutely. She lived till well over 100, um, was a very eminent lady. Even on her 100th birthday, she was telling people about the psychology of refugees and tutoring them. She was an amazing person, apparently. And her husband was, was, was chairman, like me, of the AJR. Would they have had anything to do with the formation of the AJR newsletter? Very probably, because I think it started in 1946 or 1947. So it's been one of the longest-running publications. I think, though, that his main concern in those days, which we can understand now, was restitution for the refugees, was organising restitution from the German government. How successful was he? 
very successful. He was a lawyer by training. He negotiated with the German government and succeeded in, in getting restitution for a lot of things that the refugees lost, for example, education. Indeed. I mean, it wasn't always just money, was it, in compensation? No. In those days, it was restitution of businesses. Yes. Restitution of property where that was possible. And that, that has been going on for the last 50, 60 years. And would the property have included treasures, art treasures? Because there was I, I, a separate organisation. There was a separate organisation. Yes. There was and is still um, a separate organisation that Indeed. deals with that. So our, our, the AJR itself didn't really handle that side of it. But it would have included that. Yes. yes. And the Reichmans were presumably very well known amongst the Jewish community, mostly in London? Or? In those days, we were the AJR was very much a Northwest London organisation. Right. I think now we are a, a national organisation with many, if you like, sub-branches all over, all over the UK. So we try to look after all our members, wherever they may be within the UK. Now, one would assume that the membership is perhaps declining as people age, or is, is, is that not the case? It, it, it is clearly the case, um, but we still have well over 2,000 members. Uh, amazingly, we have 600 members who are over 90. Oh, wonderful. Um, so we have about 1,500, 1,600 members of the first generation. The rest, like me, are second generation. That's very, very, very commendable, isn't it, that the second generation are still waving the flag, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, it's the second generation these days who run the organisation. Yes, of course, of course. And do you foresee that this is going to go on into the third generation yeah, um, or what? Y- yes, maybe we'll see. But we certainly, we certainly foresee that in maybe 15 to 20 years' time we'll become more uh, an organisation dedicated to funding Holocaust education. Right. And if people want more information about the Association of Jewish Refugees, where do they go? Our website is ajr.org.uk. Chairman of the Association of Jewish Refugees, Andrew Kaufman, talking to Diana Turman there about the unveiling of a plaque to honour Eva and Hans Reichmann. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and retired audio book reader, Denise Asserson. The subject has been inspired by what we heard Phil reporting on a little earlier on, Jewish influence on the music industry. There are many Jewish musicians. We could all sit here and list from Gershwin through to Amy Winehouse. But why do we think that their contribution over the years has been so disproportionate to the size of the community? Judy, let's start with you. Why do you think that when it comes to music, Jews have a certain flair? I don't know, but we're certainly brought up with all the different arts. We're all creative, or many of us are. I was giving a talk to a Jacks group in Woodford, and so many of the members there 
either they write poetry or their children write poetry or their grandchildren are artists and they're so encouraged. It's very important to us. But this, is, of course, is just music, but is it the same thing with music as you're talking about po- talking? No, one of the girls said, well, my daughter is a sort of poet. She writes lyrics, she writes music and she writes lyrics to songs and that to her is poetry and it is to me as well. Denise, what do you think about it? Why is it? Well, I'm not sure about that, why is it, but when I think of the Holocaust, I think of the music that was in the Holocaust, I think it kept them all going. So it must be something that is in the Jewish psyche, has always been. I mean, in my own family, my mother was a concert pianist, my son, my late son, was a a wonderful pianist, my brother was a wonderful pianist. It missed some of us out, including me, unfortunately. <laughs> and of course, talking about that, when you think about some of the great, great art, concert artists in the world, Yasha Heifetz, uh, Yehudi Menuhin, there were so many great violinists as well, and oh, yeah. cellists and conductors, Harry Rabinowitz, so many. But we were brought up with music in the shul. Every time you go to shul, there's, it's so based on singing. I mean, even the leader of a shul service is generally a cantor, not always a rabbi. You know, it's it's in our blood. It really is. But there are hymns, aren't there, in a church? There are. But I think if you listen to a lot of Jewish, well, certainly Jewish music in the service, it's it's quite different in the sense that hymns tend to be this certain formulaic, whereas songs in the shawl are so, they're everywhere. They're so different. They're so some are lively, some are more serious. You know, there's a real variety, and a lot of the music has been written by, as far as I'm aware, by proper oh, mu- yeah. musicians and and songwriters. Um, I know there are certain certain singers that I mean, Al Jolson, for example. Yeah. Didn't he say that he got a lot of his inspiration from Shaw? Yes, well, he was. Uh, was his father a, he a, was cousin? a cousin? He, Himself, oh, he was. Yeah. Oh, he was the husband, yes. Yes. And, of course, from America, all the musicals, in a way, it was almost good for America that the Jews were persecuted and they ran away from it, from Germany, and they arrived in America, and that's how the musicals started. Yeah. How many musicals well, I'm, I'm without sure I, Jews? I'm not sure I totally agree with you, because all, long before the Holocaust... All the composers of the great American musicals, with one exception, they were all Jews. The exception was Cole Porter. Oh, yeah. But there was yes. Richard Rogers, a Jew. Oscar Hammerstein, a Jew. Irving uh, Berlin. Gershwin. Irving Berlin. Gershwin. Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin. Jerome Kern. Yeah. Yes. Years ago, in the very late 60s, my last job, I was in the music publishing business. Oh, were you? Yes, I worked for Carlin Music. Ah. And I worked for Paul Rich. And we had so many Jewish song pluggers, which was the business side of it. And, and Paul was Jewish and Freddie Beanstock, who owned it all, he was Jewish, an American gentleman. And it was full of Jews. Yes, now you come to say that. I remember when I was uh, many, 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 many years ago when I was a, a DJ of a sort doing a program called International Hip Parade. All the people who came to see me and wanted me to play their discs on my program were nearly all, 99% of them were Jews. Yeah. Yes. And from classical music, you've got Mendelssohn, who I know he converted, but he was still a Jew. You've got Mahler. 
Offenbach. There were quite a few. And I think it was Mendelssohn who wrote the music for Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Because one of my talks is about carols and Christmas carols and Christmas songs, and so many Jews feature in in that. It's like Irving Berlin wrote White Christmas, the most famous Christmas song ever. It's brilliant. And And he couldn't even read music. It's fantastic. But that's what I find fascinating about Jews in music is that. We didn't just go into music producing music or owning production. We're all across music, musicians, singers, as you said, songwriters, musicals, even now, pop stars are Jewish. That You kind of think it's all across the board. It's obviously something, as you said earlier, Denise, I think it's in the psyche. It must be. It must be. I mean, you look back at King David and all the psalms that he wrote were all songs. And so they pass it down and pass it down. I'm going to name drop now. I oh, once God. had the great pleasure of meeting Leonard Bernstein. Oh, so did Who was, yes. without doubt, one of the greatest conductors, composers that lived in the 20th century. And he wrote the wonderful West Side Story. And yes. it was when he was in London for the London production of West Side Story that I met him. And he was about to write a mass. And he said, the only reason why I'm writing a mass is I have a Catholic wife but this is going to be the most Jewish mass <laughs> you'll ever hear because Jews are the best musicians. Well, I'm going to beat you there because we he was on our books. I mean, he was one of our... We published his work, so of course we met him. Oh, you did? Oh, yes. I, he was absolutely terrific. And in fact, he gave my husband a piece of his actual original music that he wrote. I've got it framed. And oh, no. He really oh, is. A oh, you lucky yes. thing. And then, of course, there's Stephen Sondheim. Oh, yes. And he is supposed to have based a lot of his music on Jewish music. Jewish music is so much a part of the Jewish body. And not only that, it's terribly moving. Yes. I mean, I know, of course, there's plenty of music that's moving that's not Jewish, but it is particularly moving. We're always taught, as Jews growing up, that we live in a physical world but we also have a spiritual side and it's our soul that we need to work on and improve. Music is food for the soul. It really is. It it, it creates such feeling and emotion in people. When I was doing some poetry and I could sing but have no music because it's the counting of the Omer, it's a bit, in a way, like Lent. I, I hadn't thought of this before, but how Christians can't eat certain foods over Lent, they're starved of certain foods, we're starved of music. Yeah. That's a very yes, interesting point. Is, yes, yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. hadn't thought of that. Of course, the greatest of Jewish religious music that I know is Kol Nidre. Oh, yes. And that mm. is the most moving, touching, wonderful piece of music. And it's been expanded because it's now listened to by many non-Jewish people because so many different Jewish musicians have recorded it on cellos, have sung it on violin and on piano. There are many recordings of it that you can buy. It's an extraordinary piece of music. I don't know anybody, any Jewish person, who doesn't love talking about music, whether it's classical music, whether it's show business. We don't all love all music. But we all love some music. Some there sort is of something. Music. I think Jews are synonymous with music. I mean, you think of 
music and you think of Jews. Am I wrong in that? No, no I think you're right. I think, I mean, wherever you go and there's a Jewish event, there's music. There's people singing and dancing around. I got an email from a friend and it was a little clip, a few minutes clip, of all Jewish musicians and singers. That's wonderful. And... I learnt a lot of people were Jewish who I hadn't even realised, yeah. like Victor Borg. Yeah. Victor Borg was a Jew, yeah, yes. I didn't know that. No, you know I, that I'm yes. always astounded when I hear... Elvis Presley was in it, and I know it's a No, Elvis Presley's not I don't, Jewish. I can't not see Jewish. it. Oh, we'll, we'll try and claim anyone, it. won't we? <laughs> <laughs> anyone like Elvis, Maybe anyway. his mother's 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 mother. Somewhere yeah. along the line. I've, I've just suddenly remembered something, which is a very strange story, but again, a supreme example of it. At my father's funeral, and he died at the age of 90, at his funeral, he requested me before he died. He said, I want you to do something. My grandfather was a rabbi, his father, and my father was always traditionally Jewish. But he said, I want, after the Jewish part of the funeral is over, I want someone to sing Abide With Me. So I talked to Diane Toledano, who, who did his funeral. Yeah. I talked to Diane Toledano and I said this, and Diane Toledano said, what a good idea. There's only one verse which you could possibly call Christian. We'll leave that verse out. When the whole service is over, the whole cemetery service is over, then we will get a Jew to sing Abide With Me. Which is what we did. How wonderful. And it was absolutely beautiful. And at the end of it, and there was total silence. And we all stood there. It was the most amazing thing. And I must say, I have loved Abide With Me ever since. And I always think of it now as being a Jewish hymn rather than a Christian hymn. But if they, had, if they had read that out, Clive, not sung it, but read it as a, now someone's going to read a passage called Abide With Me, it mm. wouldn't have had anywhere near the same impact. No, it, it, it would have had an impact, but no. but that's it. It's the music, yeah, it's course, the yeah. singing. Yeah. Is, but as you said earlier, Clive, Kol Nidre, one of the most serious, solemn, important parts of the Jewish year, and we're singing. It connects our souls more. I think you're right. And you know the last verse of Adon Olam, which is sung every Shabbat in yeah. synagogue, if you read the translation of the final words there, my body and my soul with God, I face my future unafraid. And you can only do that in music. That's marvellous. I yes. never knew that. Yes, <laughs> yes. If you think about it, if you think of all the different tunes that Adonai Lam has, oh, yes. and each yes. one is more beautiful yes. than the one before. Yeah. Yeah. When we read from the Torah, we sing it, we chant it. We chant it. My grandfather always said that music was the closest thing to the Almighty. And maybe that is a fact. And he was a and rabbi. I think we, we've proved that tonight. That's, I agree. A, that's a very yes. good note to I end agree. on. <laughs> yes. I don't know well, I'm afraid that's so. We'll have to leave it as our time is up. A good place to end, I think. But my thanks to our guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and retired audiobook reader, Denise Assison. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews. .co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. It's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kidloss United Synagogue. 
This Sunday, we shall commemorate Tisha B'Av, the saddest day of our calendar. It marks the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians and the second temple by the Romans. Tisha B'Av is a day of tragedy and mourning, of destruction and exile. The Talmud relates that the destruction of Jerusalem came through the story of Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa. A certain man had a friend, Kamtsa, and an enemy called Bar Kamtsa. Once he made a party and said to his servant, Go and bring Kamtsa. The man went and erroneously bought Bar Kamtsa. When the host found Bar Kamtsa there, he said, What are you doing here? Get out! Said the other, Since I am here, at least let me stay and I shall reimburse you for whatever I eat and drink. No, retorted the host. Then let me give you half the cost of the party. No, retorted the other. Then let me pay for the whole party. He still said no. He grabbed Bar Kamtsa by the hand and threw him out. Said Bar Kamtsa, Since the rabbis were sitting there and did not stop him, this showed that they agreed with him. I will go and inform against them to the government. He went and told the emperor, The Jews are rebelling against you. And it was on this pretext that the Romans launched their final assault on Jerusalem. The Talmud compares the observance of Tisha B'Av with the observance of Yom Kippur. It proclaims that whoever does not mourn the destruction of Jerusalem will not merit witnessing its rebuilding. Given its magnitude, one might have imagined that the rabbis would have placed Tisha B'Av in the context of the spiritual conflict between good and evil, Israel and Amalek, the grandiose forces that determine our destiny. Rather, we have Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa, the simple story of a man so blinded by hatred that he embarrassed another, the simple story of that other so embittered that he brought the internal problems of the Jewish community into the public arena. The Talmud does not apportion the blame. Clearly, the host is guilty. Bar Kamtsa is guilty. The rabbis who sat by are also guilty. Nineteen and a half centuries ago, the Romans despoiled the temple in Jerusalem and cast the Jewish people into exile. Our own capacity for self-destructive behavior is nothing new. It has been a motif of Jewish communities and Israeli politics throughout time. In some respects, we are a stronger Jewish world and blessed with greater national security than at any time in recent Jewish history. However, we're also a Jewish people more riven and divided against itself than at any time before. There are greater tensions between religious and secular, religious and religious, between disparate visions of Israel. Sectors of the Jewish community puzzle and marginalize fellow Jews. Jews rally against their fellow to disenfranchise, boycott and disengage. On Tisha B'Av, we're reminded that while idolatry and bloodshed destroyed the first temple and saw a century of exile, schism and misplaced self-righteous conduct destroyed the second temple, and for these, two millennia later, we are still struggling to recover. For 2,000 years we've prayed. May Hashem bless us with peace in a unified Jerusalem. May we be amongst its builders. May we recognize that heavenly healing of our city begins with our endeavors to unify our people and our own urgent initiatives to heal ourselves. Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for today. Thanks to our guests, Joseph Stober, Joan Rosenthal, Andrew Kaufman, and thanks also to the Schmooze contributors, Judy Carberts and Denise Assison, and of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us on iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London.
I'm Clive Rosslin. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.